Welcome to Sunday School. We come to a momentous point in the history history of the world, and certainly the history of Israel. For nearly 900 years, the land of Canaan belonged to the people of Israel, and then the kingdom of Israel, even the kingdom of Israel and Judah. That land was given by God to the Israelites to be a land of blessing as they followed the Lord, but the people did not follow the Lord. And as God promised in his covenant with Israel, their land became cursed, and the people were removed from the land, and the kingdom was dissolved. First, the kingdom of Israel was removed. What nation removed them, and when did they do so? The Assyrian Empire. That's right. And close, uh, or in the 700s area, does anybody remember the date for the fall of Samaria? Usually given to be 722 B.C. 722 B.C., the end of the northern kingdom and the fall of Samaria by the Assyrians. Now, Israel's removal was to be a lesson to Judah, who was called Israel's sister. But according to Jeremiah and his prophecy that we looked at last week, what did Judah do in response to the judgment on Israel? Yeah, they didn't repent. In fact, at least the way that Jeremiah lays it out, instead of becoming more righteous, they became less righteous. They actually learned from Israel's wickedness rather than Israel's judgment. And they became just as wicked and idolatrous as Israel. God sent Jeremiah as a prophet to warn Judah then of judgment if she did not repent. But Judah did not listen to Jeremiah. So the judgment that Jeremiah prophesied came to pass. And that's the subject of our lesson today. God judges Judah. Judah and Jerusalem did not fall all at once, however. It, it happened in stages. And we're going to explore precisely what happened in today's class. Here's our outline. We're going to do an activity called the Three Steps of Destruction. We're going to track the three phases of Judah's fall. Then we're going to examine again We're going to examine how Judah, even in this judgment, this tiered judgment, this different phase judgment, resisted repentance. And then we'll consider application for our lives today. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that you give me the ability ability to explain this well and to speak clearly. I pray that your spirit will work in the hearts of everyone who hears today. Lord, that we would understand what you want us to understand. You wrote this for the people of Judah, but also for us. So we pray, God, that your spirit would do the work that's necessary today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your student guides, please open to page 85, where you're going to find the activity that we're going to do for the majority of our class today. So page 85 for lesson 11. If you don't have your book, that's okay. You can use the use a blank space in a bulletin or just follow along mentally. The activity is based on 2 Kings 23 to 25, where we're going to find one of the accounts of Judah's fall. So while you open up your activity books to or your student guides to page 85, please open up your Bibles to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23 is on page 411 if you're using the Bibles in the pew. So page 411 in the the Pew Bible and page 85 in the student guide. Now here's what we're going to do in this activity. We're going to read about the last five kings of Judah. And we're going to observe certain pieces of information. First, we want to find out how long did each king reign. And then correlate that length of reign with dates. Establish some dates for the different kings of Judah who are reigning. And we'll be using Answers in Genesis' timeline for that. They'll give us a little anchor so we can base the rest of our dates. Then we're going to ask, what acts are recorded for this king of Judah? What did he do? And then finally, who oppressed Judah under that particular king? And what did that nation do to Judah and to its king? So how long did each king reign and when was that? What are the acts of the king that are recorded Who oppressed the king and the kingdom 
during his reign and what did that nation do? Those three pieces of information and there's places for those in your notes in the student guide. We're going to start with Josiah, the fifth to last king. This is the preliminary phase of Judah's destruction. Judah's actually not being destroyed yet, but this is almost in preparation for that. So we find the record of Judah in second, or Josiah in 2 Kings 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing about him. We're actually just going to start in verse 25, and we'll read to verse 30. But before we do that, 2 Kings 22, verse 1, says that Josiah reigned 31 years. And Answers in Genesis tells us that he died in 610 B.C., so if he reigned 31 years and died in 610 B.C., and remember B.C. gets closer and closer to zero, when did his reign begin? 641 B.C. 641 B.C. Now, technically, it could have been 640 B.C., depending on if we count all of 610 or all of 641, or all of 640. So there is some wiggle room there, but 641 is a good date for the start of Josiah's reign. Also, just so you know, the line of kings before Josiah, so you know where he comes in in that order, there was Hezekiah. Hey, we remember him. Great king, righteous king. And after Hezekiah, Manasseh, his son, one of the most wicked kings ever. Then his son, Amon, who was also evil, and then Josiah. So you've had two extremely wicked kings right before Josiah and before him, Hezekiah, one of the most righteous. All right, now let's learn about Josiah. 2 Kings 23, verse 25 to 30. Before him, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple, of which I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his days Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. And king Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Okay. Let's fill in the information for our activity. What do we learn about the acts of Josiah? He was a righteous king. And in the section we didn't read right before, we see he's actually trying to reform Israel. He's trying to restore proper worship in, or I'm sorry, Judah. Trying to restore proper worship in Judah. He did what was right. But what else did he do that's recorded in the section that we read? I went up to fight against someone. Whom did he go up to fight against? He went up to fight against... Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho. It says he went to meet him, but the idea is he went to fight him. Second Chronicles gives us a little bit more information about that setup. They, they fought at Megiddo. The Bible does not tell us why Josiah went to fight him, because actually Egypt was not targeting Judah. It was actually on its way up to Assyria to assist Assyria against Babylon. And in Chronicles, we actually learn that Pharaoh Necho, before the battle, says, Josiah, don't fight me. I'm not, I don't have any issue with you. I'm going somewhere else. But Josiah insists, and Josiah is killed. By the way, the battle that Egypt and Assyria are about to have with Babylon is the battle of Charchemish. Does anybody remember the result of that battle? Babylon and Assyria versus, I'm sorry, Assyria and Egypt versus Babylon. Assyria is crushed, and they're basically annihilated as an empire. And Egypt is defeated along with them. But anyways, Nico's on his way to that, fights Josiah along the way, and Josiah is killed. So who's it then who's oppressing Judah during Josiah's reign? Or does harm to Judah during Josiah's reign? Nico, by killing the king and by, by fighting against Josiah. So we have our information here of when he reigned, what he did, who oppressed Judah, that would be Egypt, by defeating Judah in battle, and killing King Josiah. All right, that's it for Josiah. 
Let's now look at the reign of Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. Now we're going to find the information for him in 2 Kings 23, verses 31 to 34. Now this is still the preliminary stage. Let's see what 2 Kings tells us. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Veronico imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Veronico made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. Okay, not a great reign for this next king. Let's observe some information. How long did Jehoahaz reign? Three months. So we're looking for dates. If he started in 610, he probably ended in 610. What do we learn about what he did? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. The only thing that's really recorded about him. He did evil just like his fathers did. We still have an oppressor of Judah during this period. Who's the oppressor? It's still Egypt. He's actually following up on his victory over Josiah. And what does Nico do to oppress Judah? Yeah, he imposes a tribute. Remember, uh, let's see, a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold, or roughly 7,500 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. So pretty hefty tribute imposed upon the people. What else? Yeah, he imprisoned Jehoahaz, and he set up another king. He sets up uh, Eliakim, whom he renames Jehoiakim. Takes the imprisoned king back to Egypt. Now notice now, in this preliminary phase, before Judah's destruction really begins, it's Egypt who's oppressing Judah. But that's going to change. The first phase of Judah's actual destruction begins under the next king, Jehoiakim. By the way, what is significant about the king of Egypt renaming Eliakim? Yeah, Roy. Right, so ultimately it is about establishing um, dominance in Judah. Anytime a, a king is deposed and another king is put in his place by uh, another nation, that's to keep the loyalty of that king. Like, hey, I raised you up, so you owe me. And, uh, but the, the name change itself is part of the symbol of authority. You remember, even in the Gospels, Jesus change, changes the name of, Pe or of Peter, who's called Simon. He says, now you'll be called Peter. And various times in the Bible, we have people being renamed. Uh, Jacob is, is called Israel. Abraham is renamed. All of those things are actually, especially in that culture, a sign of authority. Remember Adam, he had authority over the animals. He named them. When a person is renamed, the person naming is the one showing, I have authority over you. And so Eliakim is under the authority of Egypt. Jehoiakim, and his name is changed to Jehoiakim. All right, so we've seen what happened to Jehoahaz. Let's now look at the first step of Judah's destruction under Jehoiakim. Okay, so 2 Kings 23, we learned about him in 2 Kings 23, verses 35 to chapter 24, verse 7. So let's read that. Verse 35 of 23. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he had shed, 
for he, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. I thought it was Chin, by the way. It's Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. Oh, one other note here. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Okay. Let's gather information on Jehoiakim's reign. How long did he reign? Eleven years. So if he started in 610, when did his reign end? 599. Again, there could be some wiggle room depending on what what part of the year he started, but 610 to 599 B.C. What did Jehoiakim do? Eric, is that your hand? He did evil on the side of the Lord. What else did he do? Okay, later on, he becomes subject to Nebuchadnezzar, to Babylon. But he doesn't stay subject. He also rebels. And we should note he pays tribute to Egypt after, after he had been installed as king by Egypt. He does also pay tribute to Egypt. We see two oppressors in this section. One of them kind of fades away. Egypt is still imposing the tribute, but then it's Babylon. Babylon is the main oppressor. What is it that Babylon does to oppress Judah? Well, before we answer that, we'll get a little bit more specific information if we turn to a parallel passage just for a moment. Turn over to Daniel chapter 1. Because it says in our passage that Babylon came up. What does that mean? Well, Daniel is going to clarify that for us. So Daniel chapter 1. And we'll read verses 1 to 4. Right after Ezekiel is Daniel. There it is. Okay, page 881 in the Pew Bible. Here's what Daniel says in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, credibility for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Okay, so Daniel tells us that Jerusalem was besieged in the third year of Jehoiakim by Babylon. What year B.C. would that be? If he starts his reign in 610, it would just be three years later, 607, 607 B.C. Now, Jehoiakim is defeated in this siege, and he becomes subject to Babylon. But he's not deposed. He's allowed to stay there. He just has to now be subject to Babylon and not Egypt. What spoils of victory did Nebuchadnezzar take back to Babylon? He took some of the treasures of the house of the Lord. It doesn't say he took all of them or that he scraped the gold off the doors or anything like that. It just said he took some of the treasures. But he also took something else. What else did he take? He took some young men. From what sector of society? The most skilled, those from the royal family and those from noble families. So taking some of the sons of the great men and some of the, those who showed ability, and he takes them back to Babylon and trains them for his court. So we see Babylon doing a couple of different things that, that are all oppressing Judah. This is the first time that captives are being taken out of Judah into a foreign land. So technically, this is the first time that Judah is in exile, or at least part of Judah is in exile. The captivity is beginning here in 607 B.C. So Babylon invades and subjects King Jehoiakim, takes some vessels from the house of God, 
and takes some of the best and noble sons from Judah. Now, Jehoiakim is subject for three years, but then he rebels. So if he was subject from 607, that means he rebels in 604. And when Jehoiakim's reign ends, is Judah in subjection or in rebellion to Babylon? In 599, is Judah in rebellion or in subjection? Well, if he rebelled in 604, and we don't have any other record of Babylon invading and resubjecting him, and he must still be in rebellion. When Jehoiakim dies, the kingdom of, of Judah is still in rebellion against Babylon. And he passes on that rebellion to his son, Jehoiakim. So, we have the information for Jehoiakim's reign. Any questions so far? Okay. So this is phase one of Jerusalem's destruction. The first time that treasures and people are taken captive, and it's by Babylon. That happened in 607 BC. But now we go to phase two, judgment step two. Go back to 2 Kings 24, please. This next stage happens under Jehoiakim's reign. Let's read about his reign in 2 Kings 24, 8 to 17. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials, the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. That's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiakim away into exile to Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, Mataniah, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Okay. Let's fill in our information on Jehoiakim. How long did Jehoiakim reign? Three months, another three-monther. So again, if he started in 599, he probably finished in 599. What were his acts recorded here? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He also did one other thing. When Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, what did Jehoiakim do? He surrenders. <laughs> says he went out to him with his royal family and all that kind of stuff. He surrendered to Babylon, and he was spared, but he was taken captive. Now, Babylon is, again, the one oppressing Judah. But let's note what Babylon, the specific things that Babylon does this time. You see that it invades Judah and besieges Jerusalem, ultimately successful because, because Jehoiakim surrenders. But what else does Babylon do? Yeah, Eric. That's right. So now, unlike the first invasion, we have most of the treasures being taken away. All of the gold items, all of the most important treasures in the temple are taken. But not just the temple. Also, the treasures of the royal palace. Those are taken. And as you mentioned, Eric, the best people are taken. It says all the people of Jerusalem, men of valor, the commanders, the, the king's royal family, the great men, that would be the, the nobility. They're taking all the best people out of the land and just leaving the poor. 
all the temple treasures, all the royal treasures are taken, all the great men, all the skilled men are taken, and then, because the king's captive, he installs a new king, Mataniah, who's Jehoiakim's uncle. And he changes his name. Again, sign of authority. Changes his name to Zedekiah. By the way, if Zedekiah is Jehoiakim's uncle, that means that he's Jehoiakim's brother and whose son? He's Josiah's son. Because remember, Jehoahaz, when he was deposed, the one replaced, or the one who replaced him was another son of Josiah. So it wasn't Jehoahaz's son. He's actually Josiah's son. So we see phase two of Judah's destruction. Much more has been taken this time. The exile has increased dramatically. The, the captivity has increased. But Judah still has a king, a king in the line of David. It's still a kingdom. And while many people have gone, the best people have gone, there are still many Judeans living in the land. They're the poor people. But now we come to Judah's final king and the final phase of Judah's destruction. This is under Zedekiah. And we'll read about him in a longer section from chapter 24, verse 18 to chapter 25, verse 22. Starting in verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with bronze fetters, and brought him to Babylon. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the fifteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea, and the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and a bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was three cubits, with a network and pomegranates on, on the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these, with network. And then, then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. From the city he took one official, who was overseer of the men of war, and five of the king's advisors, who were found in the city, and the scribe of the captain of the army, who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land, who were found in the city, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. Now as for the people who were left in the land of, the, of the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. I think we'll just stop right there. Okay. Let's observe this final king and final phase. How long does Zedekiah reign? Eleven years. So if he started in 599, when did his reign end? 588. 588 B.C. Now when 
people give a, a date for the fall of Jerusalem, it's usually 588 or 587, sometimes even 586 B.C. What did Zedekiah do in his reign? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. What else did he do? He rebelled against Babylon. And when the siege had reached its climax and the famine was intolerable, what else did he do? He tried to escape. He fled. He and his army made a hole in the wall and they fled for their lives. Babylon's the oppressor again. What is it that Babylon does this time? Well, we know that they've invaded. They've responded to the rebellion by invading and besieging Jerusalem again. This is the third time that Jerusalem is besieged. When the king tries to escape, what does Babylon do? They catch him. They overtake him. They defeat him. His army scatters. And then what do they do? Or, Rob. Or, oh, oh, hang on to that question. Then what do they do? They slaughter his sons before his eyes. And then they put out his eyes. So the last thing he saw was his, was his sons being killed. And those would be his heirs, right? They'd be the, the next ones on the throne. They're all killed before him. What else did they do? They burn all the houses of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is basically razed. The whole city is burned. It becomes a ruin. And they break down the walls. And when a city doesn't have a wall, it's very hard to rebel because they can easily be overtaken by an army. The wall's break, broken down, temple's destroyed, and all the houses are burned. What else happens? What else does Babylon do? Right, they leave some of the poor of the land as uh, agricultural workers, but what do they do with the rest? Right, those who weren't killed, and we're going to see in a moment that many of them were killed, survivors and deserters were taken to Babylon. So this is the third group of captives that's taken away. And as you said, Rob, some of the poor were allowed to remain as vine dressers and plowmen. And basically they'd be servants to whomever Nebuchadnezzar brought into the land. There are still some treasures left that Babylon takes away. Any gold and silver implements that were left in the temple or that were remade after the last ones were taken, they were taken. And now even the bronze is taken. The bronze elements of the temple, the various implements, the pillars, all of that's taken away. And then some of the officials and priests who were there under Zedekiah are also brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens to them? They're executed. These officials had uh, participated in the rebellion, so Nebuchadnezzar executed them. And now, there's no longer a king in Judah. But instead, what? A, a vassal, uh, the, the term here is uh, a governor. There's a governor appointed. The kingdom is over. Now this land is administered by a governor of Babylon. From the people of, of Judah, but a governor, not a king. So this is the final phase of Jerusalem or Judah's destruction. It's now complete. The kingdom is gone. Though there are a few poor Judeans still left in the land, the land is devastated. Jerusalem is devastated. The, the city and its temple are ruins. And almost all the Judeans who aren't killed, who weren't killed, are in exile in Babylon. And this is exactly what God promised would happen. This is exactly what God warned Judah would happen. You remember that word from Isaiah where God says, just like the rain falls on the ground, my word will go forth and it will accomplish whatever I send it to do? It's exactly what we're seeing here. He says, I said that it would fall. I said that your, that your city would be destroyed and t the temple would be made a ruin. And look, my word came to pass. It doesn't fail. My word always accomplishes whatever I send it out to do. God brought it to pass. So let's summarize the three steps of Judah's destruction. Just to keep this all clear in your mind. Phase one, that was in 607 BC when Jerusalem is first besieged under Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was defeated, 
Judah was forced to become subject to Babylon, but the king was allowed to remain, and only some of the spoils and some exiles were taken, some of the noble sons. In phase two, or step two, that was in 599 B.C. under Jehoiakim, where Jerusalem was again besieged. Jehoiakim surrenders. Babylon sets up a new king, takes much spoil, takes all the great men, the soldiers and the skilled craftsmen, to Babylon, and also takes King Jehoiakim to Babylon to be a prisoner. And then finally, step three, phase three, that's in 588 B.C., Zedekiah is defeated by Babylon. The king's sons and his officials are slaughtered. Jerusalem is completely destroyed. Any spoil left is taken. Any people left, except for a few poor, are taken into exile. And there we have it. Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah, has been dissolved. Questions? Uh, Rob, you had a question. Okay. Yeah, so you see it here. That's right. So from you gathered that from that passage in Jan, Daniel where he talks about the exiles being taken under Jehoiakim. Daniel's one of those. Yes, uh, Roy, you had something. Yeah, uh, let me see if I can uh, repeat your point just a, l- a little bit briefly. But you see here the hand of God in bringing the judgment. The people are, are continuing to rebel, even though they have plenty of incentives not to rebel. I mean, uh, that's the whole point of what the, the somewhat gentle responses from Nebuchadnezzar after the first invasion. Yeah, you can keep your king. I'm just going to take some of your treasures, some of your men. Don't do it again. Like, I, I've done you good, so... If you want things to go well with you, then stay subject. And the same thing for when he appoints um, the next king. You have an incentive to not rebel anymore. But then finally, they're, they're annihilated because they rebel a third time. And you, and you do wonder, what was the thought process behind rebelling? What did they think they could do against Babylon? But maybe they thought, hey, we're the people of God. We've got the Lord on our side. We can win, even though they weren't following the Lord. And so it was a false confidence. But and the, your point, Roy, about how God intended to bring this judgment, and that's partly why they were so stubborn and why he allowed them to rebel like this, the text emphasizes that. And we read that, right? It kept saying, like, the, the Lord was determined to judge Judah for all the sins of Manasseh and for, and for the sins of the people. And so we actually see that the hardness of Judah's heart was itself a judgment of God that allowed his full judgment to come to pass. We'll see more about that in just a moment. Danny, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was I'm about to say something about that in just a moment. But you're right. Except for God's mercy and God's covenants, this would be the end. We would never have heard of Judah, or they'd just be a historical footnote. Like, oh, there was this one kingdom of Babylon, just steamrolled them. And when they rebelled, they were annihilated. It would be a very, very tragic end. What a sad story. The people of God are no more because they rebelled against him. Of course, that's not the end of the story. We'll say more about that in just a second. Other questions? So, in case you're wondering, and a little bit more exploring what Roy was saying, was Judah doomed from the start? When the judgment began under Egypt and Babylon, was there no hope? 
Would God have relented of judgment if the people and the king repented? Perhaps you already have an answer to that question, but to fill in a little bit more of that, let's look at the parallel account from Chronicles of the last king, Zedekiah. Go to Second Chronicles 36. Were you going to say something, Dwayne? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if we'll address that specifically, but yeah, even if, if they were just paying close attention to the law, they would know that there was always hope if they repented. Because even when they're in exile, God says, when you repent, I'll bring you back. But let's see what Second Chronicles 36, 11 to 21 says. Because we get a kind of a different perspective on the fall of Jerusalem under Zedekiah than what was given in Kings. A little bit more... Uh, focus on the spiritual aspect rather than just the historical details. So look at verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy." Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him to do his uh, servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath, until seventy years were complete. Okay, we won't observe this in detail, but notice even in the times of judgment, what were the king, priests, and people doing? They were refusing to turn to God. They were stubborn in their wickedness. They refused to humble themselves before the Lord. But the prophets were there. Jeremiah was there telling them, turn back to the Lord. And if they did, it's implied in that statement and known from the other scriptures, things would have turned out differently. There wouldn't have been this devastation. Maybe the kingdom of Judah couldn't have been saved. But maybe it could have been spared for another generation. Or maybe there wouldn't have been as much devastation in the city or as many lives lost. God certainly, as we saw with Nineveh and Jonah, God relents in judgment when his people, or when people repent. There was hope if they only turned. But they would not. So God brought the judgment. And by the way, you notice here, not everyone made it into exile. Notice verse 17 again. It says that the young men were slain by the sword in the house of God. The Babylonians had no compassion on anyone. It didn't matter who you were, young man, virgin, old man, or infirm. The people were brutalized. There was mass death in Jerusalem by starvation, by disease, and by the sword. So looking back at last week's lesson, when Jeremiah wept, for what he called the slain of the daughter of his people. He was not being metaphorical, or not just metaphorical. He foresaw prophetically, and then watched literally his countrymen being slaughtered. This was the judgment on sin. You know, the Babylonian brutality, it, it points to a number of things. It's, it is itself wickedness, God judges those who are brutal, those who are cruel, those who 
um, those who murder, and yet was also ordained by God as judgment. He's not responsible for the sin, and yet he ordained it as part of his judgment on Judah's sin. Babylonians would be judged for their wickedness, and the Babylonians intended to make an example of Judah and Jerusalem. And you can see this from a, from a human perspective, and we've mentioned this before in classes. Rebels get the worst treatment because it's to be a deterrent from others rebelling. So Israel is gone. Judah is gone too. And they're now strangers in a strange land where people speak a strange tongue and serve strange gods. And this would be the one of the most tragic stories if it ended here. Certainly Judah deserved to have it end here. Israel deserved to have it end here. But that's not where it ends. And you can see right in verse 21, already hope is mentioned. It says, 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21, the land would be devastated until what? It would be desolate. It would have its Sabbaths, the Sabbaths that the people neglected to give to the land, until what? Until 70 years were complete. In fact, if you just look below, the book of Chronicles does not end with Babylon, Babylonian exile, but with Persia and with the people returning from exile, from the decree of Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple. God is not done with his people. And this is such a sober account as, as we go through Chronicles and we go through Kings and we see the judgment brought upon Israel and Judah's sin. But God's not done. God's not done with his people. He has covenants with Abraham and David to keep. He has promises spoken by Moses, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah to fulfill. And one of the most immediate promises, prophecies, is from Jeremiah. One we didn't look at yet regarding 70 years. There's a prophecy about 70 years that God is going to fulfill. We're actually going to examine that next time. Before we close today, let's, let's bring this to today. Why is this account important for us to know about and to apply? Here's some questions to get you thinking about that. Now, we can discuss this a little bit. What does Judah's fall teach us about God? God judges sin. And not just with the people out there, right? But even among those who call themselves his people. You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself, back then, if you called yourself an Israelite, a follower of God, and yet you persist in sin, you're not shielded. God will judge you. If he was this severe with Judah and Israel, why do we think it will be any different with us? God is holy. God judges sin. And yet, we even saw that when the judgment came to Judah, it came in phases. And this was after the kingdom had been established for 500 years. What does that also show us about God? He's so merciful. He's so patient. He's so long-suffering. We saw this also in Jeremiah last week where he says, I saw Israel acting like a harlot, just continuing after her harlotry, but I said, she will return. I won't judge her yet. She will return. And then she didn't. And God judged Israel. And he did the same thing with Judah. Oh, I'll give her time. Surely, surely she would recognize the great evil that she is doing. How could she not? How could she not remember all the good that I've done? She will turn back. I'll wait. I'll give her another chance. But Judah didn't turn back, so God said, my patience has its limit. And God judged Judah. But his patience was great. And his patience is great. The fact that, if you're a believer today, the fact that you were allowed to live and come to faith is God's patience and God's mercy. And the fact that the human race has existed and that America exists and the nations that exist today is God's patience, God's mercy. Speaking of America, and the other nations. How are we in America, or even just how are we as humans in the 21st century at all similar to Judah? 
How are we similar? Yeah. Rebelling against, you're rebelling against God, yeah. Even though, I think still, the majority of Americans would confess what about God? That they believe in him. That they follow him. They would call themselves Christians, or at least believers in God. And yet, we are an idolatrous, wicked nation. And it's not just America, of course. This is the nations around the world. Many in those nations say that they are God followers, that they serve God. Some of them don't. Some say they serve another God. And yet, every nation is so wicked and idolatrous. So, looking again to Judah's example, what else does that mean about America and the nations of the world today? That God has and God will demonstrate those same attributes that he demonstrated with Judah. Patience. I have been so patient with you, America. I've been so patient with you, United Kingdom. I've been so patient with you, Arabia, and you know all the other nations in the world. I've been so patient with you, and yet you persist in your wickedness and your idolatry. My wrath will come. It will come on America. It will come on all the nations of the world. And that's one of the themes in the New, the New Testament, right? God has ordained a man through whom he will judge the world. And he testified to all of this man's authority to do this by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will come in judgment and he will judge all the nations. He will judge our nation. He will judge us. We're just like Judah. A people who claims to follow God, a nation of that claims to follow God, but actually serves idols and loves wickedness. And just like Judah, when that judgment comes, there's going to be a slaughter. This isn't like, oh, you know, people are going to be suffering. No, it's going to be destruction. With the spiritual, spiritual aspect, we don't think about things like sword or... or people literally dying, but that is the way that Jesus' coming is described. He slays them with the sword of his mouth. He calls all the birds together from all around the world, and he says, feast. Feast on those who rebel against me and that I destroy. Our countrymen, we ourselves, if we don't know Jesus, we're going to be experiencing that. But of course, there's another aspect of that judgment, and that's the eternal one. People will not just be destroyed temporally, but forever, suffering, torment, and hell. It's the price of sin, the wages of sin. It's what we earn. But if you're a believer, you're safe from the wrath of God. And yet, what has made you safe? What has happened that makes you safe from God's wrath? Yeah. Yeah, that's one way to answer it. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is that shield. He is that tower that you can go to and say, save me from the holy wrath of God. Protect me. Cover me. And Jesus is able. Jesus does it. You know that section in the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where we talk about the wise man builds his house on the rock and the foolish man builds his house in the sand. We sometimes think that's about trials, but it's not. It's about judgment. So if you listen to my words and you act on them and the flood comes, your house will be spared. It'll stand. But if you don't, the house is going to be destroyed. And great will its destruction be. So that's one way to answer it. The reason you're safe is because of Jesus' work on the cross. He died for your sins. And yet, how, how do you gain that? And why doesn't everyone gain that? What has happened? Yeah, Dan. But you mentioned it's by belief. It's not just that Jesus died and, hey, everybody's okay now. It's those who have faith in Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, those who repent and turn to Jesus. 
They're the ones who are justified. His righteousness is put on them. Their sin is put on him. He totally cancels their debt of sin. And his righteousness is infinite on them. So of course God can't judge them because they have the righteousness of Christ. They've been justified. They've been declared righteous. So yes, it's by Jesus. Yes, it's by belief in Jesus. And yet, we can also answer the question by saying it's because of God's sovereign mercy. Because why do you believe in Jesus? Because God caused you to believe. You didn't have that in yourself. God gave you the faith. God changed your heart. He did what the new covenant of Jeremiah says he would do. He wrote his law on your heart. He caused you to seek him. He caused you to repent. So a very accurate way for us to answer the question is, why don't we suffer the wrath of God? It's because God mercifully chose to spare us. He chose to make us righteous and therefore protected from his wrath. But how do you know whether that's really true of you? How do you know that you are one of that number, that you were chosen by God, that you were saved by belief in Christ, and that you've actually repented of your sin? How do you know that? Danny? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah one of the themes in the New Testament. The way you know whether you're really saved and whether you've really repented is you bear fruit of repentance. You walk in righteousness. You live a holy life. You are a new creation. The seed, the supernatural seed of God is in you. You've crucified the old way, or rather it was crucified with Christ on the cross. So you don't walk in your old pattern anymore. Do you say, but, but I prayed a prayer, but I, I had an experience. Or, I have right doctrine. You can have all those things. And yet, if you don't have the fruit of repentance in your life, you are not safe from the wrath of God. Because there are plenty of people who have believed right things. You know, the the scripture. Even the demons believe that God is one. And they shudder. Because they're expecting the judgment of God. Or, even more soberly, I think uh, from Hebrews, he says... For those who are once enlightened and yet persist in sin, there no longer remains an expectation of hope, but of terrifying judgment. Don't call yourself a Christian and then continue to walk in habits of sin and expect yourself to be safe. Judah did the same thing. It's only those who repent who demonstrate that repentance by actually turning away from sin, that can be confident of their inheritance in God. I believe that's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is described as a seal, right? A seal is a guarantee. As you see the works of the Holy Spirit manifest in your life, you know you're going to receive the heavenly kingdom because the Holy Spirit's working itself out in your life. He's the guarantee. But if you're not seeing that in your life, How can you be confident? How do you know that you're safe? As a final exhortation, my brothers and sisters, we know that God's judgment is coming. God's revealed that to us. We've been exposed to it from his word. A person faces judgment when he dies, but Christ will bring the judgment for all when he comes to the earth. So if we truly know Christ, Let us persevere in faith, in holiness, and in good deeds until Christ comes, so that when he comes, we will not receive wrath, but reward. That's all our time. If you have other questions or comments, please see me afterwards. Let's pray. God, we recognize that this is a sober word you have for us this morning. We don't want to so quickly say, oh, I'm safe from God's judgment because I'm a Christian. God, because we know that there are many who will say, we believed in you, didn't we do all these things? But you will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. God, let that not be true for anybody who's here today. Please, God, be merciful by your spirit to change the heart 
to bring forth the fruit of repentance, to be true belief so that they can be truly safe. They can be truly justified so that the wrath will not come upon them, but it will pass over them, just as you were the Passover lamb. Now it causes us to persevere. It causes us to be zealous for good deeds. It causes us to live holy, Lord, as we anticipate your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.